As we turn to Revelation chapter 12 this morning, it marks a little bit of a transition. I don't want to overstate. It's still the same thing we've been looking at, but it's a little bit of a transition. Chapters 1 through 11, the broad theme has been the triumph of the Lamb, the triumph of King Jesus over all things. In his ascension, he's on his throne, his sovereign. He is the victorious Christ. And then there's a sub-theme that's going on while this theme of the supremacy, the glory, the kingship of Christ is going on. There's this sub-theme with a dual emphasis, and it has to do with the church, the church on earth, living in this time between his ascension and his return, that we're in the world, we're his ambassadors, and we are spiritually kept safe by that king through his victory, his conquering. To those who conquer, they will receive this. We conquer through that king. But the the second sub-point there is not just the, the, the king keeps his church safe until he returns. Paradoxically, though the church is kept safe, this other point is that the sovereign king who rules over all things does often allow harm upon his church, physical harm. Spiritually kept safe but allows physical harm for the good of his people. The king who's in control allows it, permits it, sovereignly rules over it, allowing his church to suffer physically, often to the point of martyrdom. And the first 11 chapters have been pastorally, Christ through John, ministering to his church, who we feel that. We feel our hope is in Christ, but physically... And this life is hard. And, and how do we navigate this life? Chapters 1 through 11 have shown us that. And it's done it from kind of a, an earthly perspective, if you will. Focusing upon externals. Here's where chapter 12 transitions. Same message. King on the throne. That's the broad theme. Sub-theme with two points. Church is safe spiritually, but the church is suffering physically. Chapter 12 shifts to that same thing, but looking at it from heaven's perspective. Same dual emphasis that we've seen, but now shifting from focusing upon the externals, this is what is happening, to focusing upon the internals and the why, if you will, the root system of why things are happening the way they are. Does that make sense? Same thing, just from a different perspective. It goes back to the imagery we've been talking about all along. Think about a football field, cameras all over the field. They're watching the same game, but different cameras are bringing us from different perspectives, showing different things. And in chapter 12, and for the next little bit, it's showing us what's going on under the surface. Why are things the way they are? Why is the church suffering? How can God send his son and offer peace in the world and the world reject him? Why? That's what this section is about. It kind of goes deeper into these truths. Now, Revelation 12 is curious because of the imagery we see here. But make no mistake, Revelation 12 it will not benefit us if we're, our interest in it lies in, I wonder who the woman is, or I wonder who the dragon is, or I wonder who the child is. If we approach chapter 12 out of mere curiosity, it won't profit us. 
Chapter 12 was written to a suffering church, the seven churches, representative of every church in every age and every circumstance. Revelation is more than just, chapter 12, more than just interesting. That's God's word to us. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, let me just ask this. How many of you, when you've read Revelation 12 in the past, you just, you just throw your hands up? You just, I mean, fascinating imagery, but you just throw your hands up and like... I, it makes no sense. Certainly nothing practical there. Certainly nothing profitable there for me today. Has that been your experience? It's been mine. And while there are certainly challenges to understanding the text before us, I hope we're beginning to cultivate an understanding of biblical interpretation that we have help with this. Everything that we need to understand this has been provided to us in what's come before it. Chapters 1 through 11, I think, are a great help to us if we read this in light of what's come before it. What do we know so far? Nothing, in nothing short of the Lord's gracious kindness 
He has already made it clear at the very beginning in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation that all of the contents of Revelation are about Jesus. That's a massive help. So that means any interpretation of this or any other text that goes off into airplanes and helicopters, and we can do away with those because this is about Jesus. This is about the glory of the king. And it was written for the good of the church, the good of those seven churches. And there weren't airplanes around in that day. <laughs> so already, that's a great help. There's a lot of clutter when it comes to this. And I'm, I'm having to wade through it too. I've held to some of that clutter before. But if we allow Revelation to speak, God has said, I've written this for my church. My seven churches, representative of every church in every age. And it's intended to be grace and peace. To provide grace and peace to you today. Why? Because you churches are on a battlefield. You're in a fight. And this is intended to help you. And what, what is the great help he's given to us? Again, chapter 1 tells us it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. The revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. Jesus has been unveiled elsewhere. I mean, the whole Old Testament speaks of him. He's unveiled when he arrives in the New Testament. In what way does revelation unveil Jesus? In his exaltation. And where he is now, in, in his kingship, in his lordship, in his rule, in his reign. And the message here is that Christ Jesus crucified, resurrected, risen, ascended, enthroned on high, sovereign. That is the great gift to the church of Jesus Christ today. And the day between the ascension and his return. The great gift, the grace and peace to every church in every age is the unveiling of Christ on his throne. That's the gift. So if Christ unveiled on his throne is the gift to the church of Jesus Christ in every age, that means he alone is what we need. So then I trust that with the Spirit's help, we can see in Revelation chapter 12, our King, Jesus Christ. So are there interpretive challenges here? Absolutely. I have hit my head against the wall all week this week and in weeks gone past trying to figure and work through some of these things. With the help of others, I stand on their shoulders. But Revelation chapter 12 is not something that we throw our hands up and say, it's certainly not practical for me today. It's not profitable for me today. I hope that by the end you'll see chapter 12 is a beautiful chapter. And a chapter that's actually very plain, very practical, very profitable for our grace and peace. Because it portrays for us the glory of our King. Well, before we get into it, I do think I want to take a moment to try to Let's step back and let's, let's think about what we have on display here. There are three basic scenes that are, we shift between in Revelation chapter 12, all right? The first scene runs from verses 1 through 6. In your Bible, you may even see there's kind of a break point there in verses 1 through 6. In this first scene, it opens with a woman, a pregnant woman. And let's be real honest, if we're reading it, this is unnerving. 
This is what we read here. It's a scene that, that ought to bother us because what we have here is we have a pregnant woman and she's in birth pains. She's having contractions. She's ready to give birth to a baby and she's crying out in agony. And this seven-headed reptile slithers up to her womb, opens his mouth wide, and the moment that child is born, the serpent is going to eat it. Now, if you haven't understood that, you're not reading closely. That's the imagery. This woman is in birth pains. This seven-headed serpent comes up, opens his mouth wide to her womb, and the moment the child is born, the serpent has every intention of devouring that child. Amazingly, God intervenes. In verses 7 through 12, we have the second scene. It shifts. Again, in your Bible, you'll probably note the, the, the uh, indentions. In verses 7 through 12, the, sheen, the scene shifts, if you will, to this holy battle going on behind the scenes. Remember, in Revelation we're not looking at chronological events that this happens, then this happens. We're looking, all of it's happening at the same time. So while the serpent is ready to devour this child and God is intervening, verses 7 through 12 gives us another scene happening at the same time. There's this holy war going on between Michael and the holy angels battling this dragon and a third of the angelic hosts who side with him. And it's interesting, unique in this, God empowers Michael and his angels. They're the ones who take the fight to the dragon. It's not they're fighting off the dragon. It's just very interesting. They go on the offensive against the dragon. It's not the woman who defeats the dragon. It's not the child who defeats the dragon. It is, at least in this vision, the angels go on the offensive. And then there's a, a, another imagery that we see here in verses 13 through 17. This frustrated dragon who now has been defeated by the angelic hosts, he is enraged in verses 13 through 17. He's angry. He's frustrated. His purposes, he intended to devour that child. His purposes have been frustrated. And now he turns, he's been defeated. He turns his rage against the mother. He's lost the child. He turns his rage against the mother. He tries to attack the mother, but the mother is given the wings of an eagle and is lifted off to protection out of harm's way into the wilderness where there God supernaturally supplies the mother's needs in the wilderness. Man, that sounds an awful lot like Egypt. God bringing Egypt out on eagle's wings. That's his own words, Exodus 19 in the wilderness, and God supplying their every need, manna from heaven, supernaturally so. These are allusions to these things. So the dragon, he's frustrated, he's enraged, but even still, he cannot get the woman. She's rescued. So this morning, for the sermon text, I want to follow those three visions, and then I'm going to add a fourth to it. And think of it this way. In verses 1 through 6, we want to consider the dragon engaged. He's engaged in his purposes. In verses 7 through 12, the dragon expelled. He's defeated and expelled. In verses 13 through 17, he's enraged. The dragon enraged. 
And then the fourth point will be the dragon overcome. Overcome. And I think verse 11 is a great summary hope of what uh, Revelation 12 is all about. Beautiful, practical, Christocentric. Verse 11, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. So let's look together at these visions here. First of all, the dragon engaged in verses 1 through 6. The vision opens with this dramatic scene. Verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. Now, who is this woman? Contrary to Roman Catholic belief, I just want to get this out there. There is absolutely no biblical reason, no biblical support to hold that this is the Virgin Mary. But along those same lines, there's no reason to believe it's any one particular woman in history at all. It's not any one person. Rather, verse 1 tells us this woman's a sign. Isn't that what verse 1 says? And a great sign appeared in heaven. And the sign is this woman. And she's radiantly clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. A crown of 12 stars on her head. So again, she's a sign. She's symbolic of something. The great question is what? What is she symbolic of? How would we interpret that? We don't want to just guess. We don't want to just sit around and, and look at what other people have offered up and say, well, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," or which one just seems to feel best? We, we need biblical warrant. Who is this? Well, how have we been interpreting biblical symbolism in the book of Revelation all along? You go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the, the, the capital A author of the book of Revelation is the capital A author of everything that has come before it. What has God himself said about these images in days gone by, in, in, in pages gone by. And I think the key to understanding and interpreting these characters, this cast of characters in Revelation chapter 12, is the Old Testament itself. And this vision in particular recalls to mind Genesis chapter 37. There you'll remember Joseph's dream. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. See if you don't capture the imagery of Revelation 12.1. Behold, Joseph said, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing to me. And then when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've dreamed? Are you saying, Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Is that really what this dream is all about? So what do we take away from that? Jacob, the father of Joseph, understood what that dream was about. He understood that the moon and the star, uh, sun and the moon, that was he and his wife. And the stars were his 11 children. The, tw- the 12th star would have been Jacob himself. And they bowed down before him. And when you compare that dream with what we see in Revelation 12:1, it's a direct parallel. The sun, the moon, the 12 stars. Well, what did Jacob represent there? Where you have these things that clothe this woman bowing down to him here in in Genesis 37. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel, the people of God. It's representative of the people of God. That's who Jacob was. He was Israel. And Jacob's 12 children were what? The 12 tribes of Israel. 
which were symbolic of God's whole community of chosen people. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, we, we see the 12 apostles in the New Covenant. The fullness of the people of God is opened up to include Gentile as well in the New Covenant. All this to say, we, we could certainly belabor the point and go on and on and on to more evidence. There's certainly other passages that use this same imagery to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. The point is here, this woman is the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. Yes, in the Old Testament. Yes, in the New Testament. United together, it is the church. It's exactly who the book of Revelation is written to. The church of Jesus Christ in every age. Now, if the identity of the woman requires a little bit of work to try to work through and study to go back, uh, fortunately, praise God, with a dragon, we don't have to do the work. <laughs> we read in verse 3 about this dragon and another sign, right? So we're not thinking about a literal dragon, anything that, this is a sign. Right? It tells us in the text, another sign was given. And this sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, not a literal sea monster, a sign a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems well who is this dragon we are told in verse nine right i encourage you to keep your bible open it'll be a great help in this one in verse nine and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world so who is this great red dragon it's satan the very same serpent that entered into the Garden of Eden, just reached maturity. Now he's a dragon. All right, see the parallel, see the imagery. The serpent, the dragon, he's just grown up to maturity. He's now pictured as a dragon. The dragon, a picture of ferocity, a picture of intensity. The seven crowned heads, the, the ten horns remind us of his authority. He's the prince of this world, Jesus' own language his authority, his rule over this kingdom. Seven being the number of fullness, right? Seven churches representative of the fullness of Christ's church in every age. Seven horns here, the perfection of Satan's kingdom, Don't, meaning that it's the fullness of it in the here and now, the fullness of his kingdom in the time between the ascension and his return. This sign, this picture of the great red dragon, his authority, his ferocity, his power. It's a demonstration of who he is. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Again, likely a, a reference to the, those angelic beings who joined Satan somewhere in between creation and when the serpent appears in the Garden of Eden, somewhere in that I submit to you, small window, Satan, the chief angel, if you will, decided he didn't want to be a servant of the king. He wanted to be his own. He wanted to be like God. So he took it upon himself, and he brought a third of the angelic host with him. And it's not by accident. It's also when Satan stands before Eve. What's the temptation? The day that you eat, you will be like God. He's tempting her with the very same thing that tempted him. And that's who this one is. And this struggle between the pregnant mother and the serpent, between the church and the serpent, is as old as redemptive history itself, right? Genesis 3.15. 
when the serpent enters in to the Garden of Eden and tempts the woman and Adam and Eve fall, God himself says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That's what we're seeing here when the serpent is portrayed as standing at the womb of the woman ready to devour, ready to eat that child. That is Genesis 3.15. That's the promise there. This, this, this uh, enmity between the two. When Cain killed his brother Abel, right? We, we, when, if you remember our study of Genesis, when, when human history was immediately sent off into two lines, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Why did Cain kill Abel? It's the enmity, enmity between seed of the serpent and seed of the woman. Cain was seed of the serpent. Abel, seed of the woman. And this, it's just, again, just these, this enmity has been going on all throughout human history. And that's what we see here in this passage. It's another stage in the conflict when the dragon is dead set to kill the child of the woman who is the promised seed, the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ. According to John, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is this child? It's Christ. It is the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman. It is Jesus. And what we have here in verse 5 is apocalyptic language that it only speaks of his ascension, but it's, that's accounting for his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The ascension here focuses upon it is God who protected Jesus and brought him out of the serpent's mouth, ready to devour him, and brought him to his throne in the ascension. And what about the mother? Well, she was sent off into the wilderness. There is parallel imagery. Who was trying to kill Jesus in his earthly life when he was born? Another seed of the serpent. King who? Herod. And how in the world did Jesus escape as an infant, escape the jaws of the serpent there? God sent him where? Into the wilderness for a time to hide. You see, all the imagery coming together. And the time nourished for 1,260 days. Well, yeah, we've seen that in previous chapters. Another symbolic number of the time between the ascension and his return. Meaning, while the woman, the church, is in the wilderness, in this world, between the time of his ascension and the time of his return, God will nourish his people. There will not be a day go by that God, who has devoted himself to his people, will not provide for their every need. And lest we think that, man, that's just, I don't know if I can believe it. Go back and look. When God brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, they'd been there for 400 years in the wilderness. They're starving to death. Do they die? Not because of starvation. God supplies in the wilderness. During the Exodus, he provides for them manna from heaven. Think about Elijah when he was fed by ravens while hiding in the wilderness. All of these are images now too, just like God did then. All that is imagery to say that's how he will provide for the woman, for the church, while she's in the wilderness. 
during this time of 1,260 days, the time between his ascension and his return. We are the one. And he has promised to feed us. Bread from heaven, living water. And we're not talking about physical food there. What did Jesus say he himself as? I am the bread of life. I am the living water. How does God nourish his church on this earth? It's not by physical means necessarily, material wealth. It is Jesus. That's how he nur- That's why the message of the gospel, the message of Hebrews, is look unto Jesus. Church, look to Jesus. Look to him. He is God's nourishment. He is God's grace and peace to you in this time of great need. Well, that's that first vision. And then in verses 7 through 12, we want to think about the dragon expelled. In verse 7, again, John is describing that same period of time that was just described in verses 1 through 6, but now from a different perspective. Not from the perspective of struggle on earth between the church and the dragon, but now it's kind of behind the scenes the dragon and the angelic host. Once the woman has given birth and the Messiah has come, in verses 7 through 12, Satan suffers a great defeat. Verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, they fought back. I mean, they're not going down without a fight. They fought back, but he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I wonder if that's what Jesus is speaking of in Luke 10, 18, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't know. I wouldn't press it. But I wonder. As a result of the defeat there, he's thrown down to earth. He's expelled from heaven. Thrown down to earth. We read, and I heard a loud voice, verse 10, in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows His time is short. So what's happened here? No longer does Satan have access to heaven. No longer does he have access to the saints around the throne to accuse them. But he's been thrown down to the earth. And we're going to see in just a moment, he does have access here to accuse the brethren. But up there, he doesn't. Up there, the devil has been overcome. Verse 11 tells us, by the blood of Christ. It's by the blood of Christ. Because those around the throne in heaven, because their sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, because they've been washed and cleansed by him, every trace of sin has been taken away. Satan cannot accuse them anymore. Up there, they don't fear Satan. 
Up there, they don't fear death. Up there, there is no fear. But we're not up there, church. And so John cautions you and I. Verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? That's where Satan has been thrown down to. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. The dragon's been expelled from heaven, thrown down to earth, so that the church, same period of time, right? Between the ascension and his resurrection, we have the reality of Satan in our midst. And can I say, he's been expelled from there. And now he's enraged down here, which is the third vision, verses 13 through 17. This dragon who has been expelled, Satan who's been expelled, now is enraged. And verse 13 returns back down to here. All right, are you following? Are you following the line here? Satan now is here. And verses 13 through 17 describes the battle that rages on earth between Satan and the woman, between Satan and the church, between Satan and you. According to John, Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Let me hear it from you. Who is the woman here? The church, it's us. When he saw he'd been expelled from there, they were covered by the blood. He can't accuse them anymore. They're covered with the blood of Christ. Their sins are forgiven. And he's been expelled down here. He pursues you and I, the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, apocalyptic language, apocalyptic symbolism here that we've got to work through. It draws from the Old Testament, and this one's not as difficult. Where do we see this kind of imagery of being drawn away on the eagle's wings? Well, it's Exodus chapter 19 the Lord God himself says to Israel, you yourselves saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I did that, Israel. You didn't do it. You saw what I did to them in the plagues and you saw I protected you through it. What plagued them didn't affect you. And I brought you to myself here at Mount Sinai and I did it on eagle by grace. Supernatural, undeserved, unmerited grace. And here, what Yahweh did for Israel there is exactly what he's done for the woman, for the church, in preserving her in the wilderness as we live in the world. Satan has been tossed down here. He's alive and well in the time between the ascension and the return. This is the world we live in. This is the life we live in. But God now does for us what he did for Israel and Egypt. And he does so for time, time, time and a half. And again, that is apocalyptic language for, we've seen it in previous chapters, just another way of talking about 
for as long as it goes on the ascension until the King Jesus returns, whether it be tomorrow, whether it be another 2,000 years, whether it be another 20,000 years. I know that baffles our mind. I have no idea. The point is, as long as it goes, church, I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you. A grace on eagle's ring, wings. Now, enraged by his defeat, knowing his doom is sure, right? That's the second imagery we've seen there. Enraged by this, frustrated by his inability to destroy the child, destroy Jesus. That's what it was all about, right? Even the temptation in the wilderness, trying to get him away from the cross. You can have all the nations, just hey, we can avoid the cross. Don't go to the cross. Why? What happens at the cross? Sin, Satan, death is defeated. I'll give you all this stuff without the cross. Every effort that Satan, the seven-headed serpent, had to devour Christ, to keep him from crushing the head of the serpent, he failed. And it's a done deal. But until then, he's going after Christ's church. And that's the world we live in. That's our daily experience. Notice John describes Satan on the earth as, verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. Poured out water to go after the woman. Why? To sweep her away with the flood. You see what he's doing? He's trying to destroy the church. The church that belongs to the king. The church that is the ambassadors of the king. The church that lives to glorify the king. The church that lives every single day looking to this king, joyfully holding on to him, clinging to even on their worst day. Right? Psalm 129. Even in their suffering, in their persecution, they are holding on to Jesus. Satan is doing everything possible to pull us away. Now the image here of the flood coming from his mouth is not literal, it's symbolic. But the idea here is Satan is doing everything in his power to sidetrack the church. Everything in his power to deceive the church. Paul's there. Remember the seven churches? What was it that Jesus was condemning those churches for? Compromise with Christ. They had added to Christ, Christ plus this. Or they had completely turned away from Christ. And the message to most of the churches was repent. And we said, think back, repentance is not just a saying the phrase, it is person-oriented. Repent because you have turned away from this king, turn to the king in your daily life, in your your daily practice, in your suffering, in your hardship, in the hospital, in your quiet time, in your prayers, in your preaching, in your philosophy of church ministry, in life, in sickness, in death. Turn to Jesus and make him everything to you. If Jesus is just a U-Haul in addition to everything else, you have betrayed the king. And we live in a day today where churches say, church members, Christians, perhaps you and I, well, nobody's perfect. And that's where Satan, the flood, has come in to deceive. No, none of us are perfect. But that does not take away. Jesus is the all in all. 
And he is everything, and all of life to be cultivated around him. That's what frustrates Satan. It's all about Jesus. And man, if we can gather together and study Revelation and spend years on it and write pages and multi-volumes on it, and so long as we never, ever get to the glory of Jesus and repenting and turning to Jesus, Satan says, I've won. No, no, I'm a defeated foe. My head has been crushed at the cross. But I've turned people away from Jesus alone, which is the great call of the gospel. I would commend to you, we will get there next week and in the coming weeks, Lord willing. That's the spirit of Antichrist that we see that's already gone forth into the world to deceive the people of God. The deception is not something other than Jesus. I mean, that works among the unconverted. But the spirit of Antichrist is something plus Christ. Christ in and of himself is inadequate, insufficient. There's something more that's needed. That's the danger. Here's the grace. Verse 16, but the earth, remember the flood came out of the serpent's mouth trying to deceive, to devour the woman. Verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman. Again, uh, apocalyptic language here. Don't, Don't try to, the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, mysterious language, certainly, but we've seen this before. Again, you've got to bleed Bibline. You've got to bleed the Bible. But this is exactly in Numbers chapter 16, where the ground opened up and swallowed Korah. Remember the sons of Korah? Because of their deception? After Moses finished speaking in Numbers 16, we read the ground under the priests split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. And they went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Well, just like God's done before. These lies of Satan that Jesus is not enough, God will swallow them up as well. But certainly, Satan is wreaking havoc. And so John says, after being frustrated two times, right? He couldn't get the the child in the first vision. And then here he sends out the flood and God rescues people there. So he's been frustrated two times. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman, with the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you see what the, the hinge of this whole thing is? It's Jesus. It's what we do with Jesus. That's the hinge of the whole thing. And he stood on the stand of the sea. Now, the dragon will continue to wage war through the agency of beast and antichrist that are to come. Lord willing, we'll get there. But for here, do you see the the story of redemption? It's just from heaven's perspective, kind of getting down into the details a little more. Christ is king. The church is spiritually safe, but the church is physically suffering. Why? Well, now we enter in the dragon and the hostility between the dragon and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the blood of Jesus Christ 
and the hostility, the frustration, the anger of the dragon. So we've seen the the, the dragon engaged, we've seen the dragon expelled, the dragon enraged now, and that's where he is today, enraged. I simply want to close with this, the dragon overcome. And go back to verse 11. Because church, this was written for our grace and our peace. Not just to make us aware of the presence of the enemy of Satan in the world, but to absolutely give us grace and peace. The woman conquered. She conquered the dragon. How do we? Despite the devil's rage, he still can't defeat us. Because we're told in verse 11, she, we, conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. For she, for we, did not love our lives even unto death. I don't think the imagery here is accidental. The imagery is of the biggest mismatch in the history of the world. You have this ferocious seven-headed dragon and a pregnant woman in the pains of contractions ready to give birth. Ladies, I can't speak to it. Is there any more vulnerable position in life than in that moment? A powerful seven-headed dragon versus a woman moments away from childbirth. This is the biggest mismatch in the history of the world. And then, even when by God's grace the woman survives that, she's sent off into the wilderness, right? That isn't exactly a safe place to live. There's a reason the wilderness is called the wilderness. Dangers, toils, snares all around. This is a tremendous mismatch. This pregnant woman, this woman who's given birth, the church against the dragon, the church against the world, the wilderness. This is a mismatch. How in the world can the woman, can the church survive, conquer? Verse 11, answer by the blood of the lamb. Now, lest that sound like bumper sticker theology, we've already been told in that third vision That in heaven, before he was thrown down, he was the great accuser. Accusing the martyrs, accusing those around the throne. His technique hasn't changed. Now he's been thrown down to earth, we read in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. This is still one of the great ministries of the devil, to accuse the saints, to lie, to deceiving you and I who are true believers, if we are true believers, deceiving us that we are not who we are, that that we cannot do what we've been given grace to do. One of Satan's primary weapons is lying. He's the great accuser. Why is this important to know? Because as the church of Jesus Christ today, whose primary calling is to live unto Jesus, look unto Jesus, and out of the beauty, the radiance, the fullness of Jesus It flows in and through us, and we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And then all those secondary things, and I say secondary not because they're unimportant, but they they are not looking unto Jesus. 
This is the primary source of everything else in the life of the church. Not willpower. Not, well, we should do this. It will be done as Christ becomes everything to us. But it is difficult to live consistently when you don't believe you are who you are. Stated another way, it's difficult to live inconsistent with how, who you believe yourself to be in the moment. Are you, are you grabbing that? It's hard to live unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus, loving him, holding on to him, clinging to him, when you yourself believe yourself to be or perceive yourself to be something other than someone who's devoted to Jesus. And this is where Satan comes in as the great accuser, and he tries to persuade you and I that you're a failure. You're a fool. You're a nobody. Your church is nothing. You're of no use to God. You're an embarrassment to Christ. What a waste to confess your sins because you know good and well you're going to do it again tomorrow. Maybe even before you even finish this prayer. You're, you're inferior to other believers. You see other Christians out there and I mean, you, just, you know you don't match up to them. Or you're destined to always fall short of their success. You're a hopeless victim of your past. Insert Psalm 129. Not a hopeless victim of our past. The past is sovereignly ordained by God. But be that as it may, that's the perception. That we're helpless to change our future. That we're a pathetic excuse for a Christian. I'm just using language that's common to my own heart and mind. And you frame it however you want to. That, you know, you're more like Satan than you are Jesus. What you are now is what you'll always be. You're beyond the reach of prayer. You're beyond the reach of grace. <laughs> You're so stupid. So stupid to sit in there on a Sunday morning to listen to this junk. And I think it's going to make any difference. Well, we can believe the lies. Or we can stand our ground against such accusations, not in our own strength, not in our own willpower. I beseech thee, Satan. He's the great dragon. We're the woman. That's a mismatch. How do we stand our ground? Not in our own strength, but on the ground of the cross. I've shared this illustration before. It's one I go to personally a lot. But I think it's helpful here. Imagine you're in a wheat field. And as you look around to the horizon, fire is everywhere. It's consuming the wheat, and it's all coming in towards you. It's just a matter of time. The field is ablaze everywhere. You're in the middle. There's nowhere to escape. What do you do? An option would be, Light the ground right around you on fire. Let the wind and the flames burn that ground right there. And then after that's burned out, stand right in the middle of that burnt ground and let the fires come forward, come around you. Why? Where you're standing, there's nothing to burn. You're safe. Now listen, I'm a city boy. I have no idea physically if that works out. <laughs> spiritually it does though 
Spiritually, it absolutely works out. It may be risky physically, I'm not condoning it, but spiritually, that's what it means. That these people have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. You see, one way to overcome the devil, the dragon, because as the church of Jesus Christ, if we're reading chapter 12 correctly, the enemy is enraged. He's spewing out a flood of deceitfulness. And it's going on all around us. Even from Christian friends, Christian churches, Christian ministries, people we trust, good moral people, who just in a moment of deception have added to the gospel or turned to Jesus plus something else, will be devoured. The only hope to avoid being destroyed by the tactics of the enemy is to stand upon the ground that's already been burnt the ground and tr- where Christ himself burned up in our place. Satan, the serpent, had Christ in his clutches on the cross. He had the child dead. And three days later, he came back to life. Christ ripped open the jaws of the serpent and tore it in half. Not a fatal wound, he's still around. But he's bleeding out, and he's enraged until he's done. But that ground where Christ died, he took on the wrath of Almighty God in our place. The blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God. It removes our guilt by the blood of Jesus Christ, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. Sin, because of the burnt ground where Christ died, no longer has power over us. It's still a reality, but it doesn't have to be. It's a battle. And there on that burnt ground, it's where Satan was defeated. It's where sin was defeated. It's where death was conquered. So much so that even if the beast is allowed to come into that burnt ground of the cross and to kill you, guess what? You get to go reign with Christ forever. To live as Christ. And to die, church of Jesus Christ, with the enemy doing all his junk around us, is gain. We conquer by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we have to respond to the deceitfulness of Satan by remembering things like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the... Satan says some true things, some right things. I'm not perfect. I'm not what I should be. Yes, I mean, if you want to put me, compare me to other people, you know what? I'm never going to match up to uh, your favorite husband, your favorite male, your favorite preacher, your favorite. And the same thing's going to be true for you. I'm never going to match up. There's always going to be somebody better. But here's what I know I'm not what I once was because I stand on the burnt ground of the cross. And all the worst things about me have been passed away. Christ took them. And I'm a new creation. Or Ephesians chapter 2. Satan, you're right. I once was dead in trespasses and sin. Used to be. But God being rich in mercy. On this hallowed ground on which I stand at the cross. Because of the great love with which he had for us. Even when I was dead in trespasses and sin. He made us alive together with Christ. You see, you're combating with the blood of Christ. 
Coming to Life Church, that's how we overcome. That's how we are presently overcoming. Conquering. Does not mean that we conquer Satan in that we destroy him. It does not mean that we put a permanent end to his attack. It doesn't mean that Satan can't kill us physically. It does mean that in the blood of Christ we find strength to say no to sin. And we find firm faith in Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus. The blood of Jesus. That's how we conquer. I know you're battling. I am too. Put away your own efforts. We conquer by the blood of Jesus. Maybe this morning there needs to be repentance. Maybe we weren't intentionally adding to the gospel. Maybe we weren't intentionally trying to add our own strength and our own merits to Christ, but we've done so. We've denied his sufficiency. We've denied his enoughness. So Lord, we turn to you. Open my eyes to see Christ that he is enough. And grant me grace to conquer by the blood of the Lamb. This morning, if you're not a... Revelation's written for Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you don't want to go up against this enemy alone. And you certainly don't want to face the wrath of God alone. Your only hope is the blood of Jesus. To repent of your sins and profess faith in Jesus Christ. I urge you, I plead with you. Don't toy with Satan. And don't toy with our God.